You're listening to Nowhere to Run with Chris White on the Revelations Radio Network. everybody, what's up? Welcome to Bible Prophecy Talk and Nowhere to Run. My name is Chris, and it's good to be back with you. I t- decided to take a bit of a break after the publishing of the latest book, um, and finally I'm getting back into podcasting and putting out videos. Speaking of videos, I just put out one about a week ago called Strange Trumpet Sounds Debunked 2015, in which I refute a lot of the uh, ideas going around about the uh, strange sounds heard around the world and all that. You can check out the description section of this podcast or just uh, Google the phrase Strange Trumpet Sounds Debunked 2015 and you can see the video. It's doing pretty good, about 30,000 views in its first week and uh, seems to be going pretty strong. So what I've decided to do for my next big project is a in-depth study on the book of Revelation that will be Uh, released for free as a podcast. It will be released for free as a complete video series. As I progress, I'll put these videos on YouTube, as well as for free um, in text format in PDFs as I go along. This study today that we're going to be doing is really only the first four verses. It's a 30-minute podcast, and I did go into quite a little bit of detail on certain aspects of it, but it is only the first four verses. So based on that, it could take me quite a while before we're through the book of Revelation. So this could be a project that takes uh, a year or so, but uh, I'll definitely try to get it done quicker than that. I've decided to do this in such a way that pays particular attention to areas that are controversial or often misunderstood or things that I just feel need more clarity. So there'll be times where I talk at length about a, you know, just a few words. Um, But for the most part, if something's plainly understood or whatever, I'm going to just breeze over it with uh, minimal commentary. But as I said, focusing in on those areas that I think are of particular importance. As I said, we're going to only be doing the first four verses here you you might notice a lack of an intro. So I'm not going to talk about the date of Revelation or the structure of Revelation or those kinds of things yet. I plan on doing those uh, those introductory remarks at the end of the study. I feel sometimes it's a little better to wait until you're done with something to write an intro. It seems a little backwards, but the so the first podcast will be the last uh, one that I do. All right, so without any further ado, let's begin this study, this journey through the book of Revelation, starting with verses 1 through 4. Revelation chapter 1. Revelation 1, verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John. The revelation of Jesus Christ. The word revelation means an unveiling or a revealing. This could either mean a revealing of information about Jesus Christ 
or a revealing of information by or from Jesus Christ. Both are possible and indeed appropriate since the book of Revelation does give us a deeper understanding of Jesus Christ, but it also says quite clearly that it was given to us directly from or by Jesus Christ. Given the direct context, it seems more likely to refer to the fact that this revelation was given to the church by or from Jesus Christ, since the phrase is followed by a declaration of the chain of custody. It says that it was God that gave this revelation to Jesus, who then gave it to the church via an angel to John. But again, both views are possible, since there can be no doubt that the book of Revelation is full of information about Jesus Christ, and shows us clearly who he is and what he will do. Things which must shortly take place. There is a lot of speculation about this phrase. Some see this as a conflict of sorts, since it seems clear that most of the events in the book have not yet occurred. Considering that it has been close to 2,000 years since the book was written, it has led people to wonder why John would use the phrase, things which must shortly take place, if the events did not come to pass immediately after its composition. Preterists and partial preterists hold to the position that this phrase proves their view that the majority of prophecy was fulfilled in 70 AD when the Jewish temple was destroyed by the Romans. They insist on an early date for the composition of Revelation, pre-70 AD, in order to make this particular case. One notable problem, particularly for the partial preterist view, is that this same phrase also appears in the last chapter of Revelation, 22.6, and infers that the things which must shortly take place include all the things mentioned up to that point in the book, which would necessarily include not just the day of the Lord judgments, but also the bodily return and the setting up of the kingdom of God. The latter two of these three events, the partial preterists would agree, have not yet occurred. In other words, because this phrase appears at the beginning and end of Revelation, it prohibits the partial preterists from picking and choosing which events will shortly take place. And if they wish to be consistent, they must either become full preterists, who believe that even the prophecies of Jesus' second coming occurred in 70 AD, or they must find some other way to understand this phrase. The full preterist position is very rare, and in this author's opinion is not worthy of a full treatment of its failings at this point. Premillennialists like myself, who see the prophecies in the book of Revelation as having not yet occurred, also have differing opinions about how to understand this phrase. John Walvert and many subsequent commentators suggest that the Greek word intakiai, here translated as shortly, can also be translated as swiftly. Walvert and others would therefore argue that the phrase should not be understood as the things needing to come to pass shortly after John wrote them, but rather that when they do come to pass, they will do so swiftly, in rapid succession of one another. While it is true that the Greek word intakiai can be translated as swiftly or shortly, numerous instances of the words being used in both ways can be found in the New Testament, it does not seem that Walvert is correct in saying that swiftly is meant in this case. I say this for several reasons. The first reason is because in the next verse, Revelation 1 verse 2, it seems to reiterate the shortly aspect of intakiai when it says, For the time is near. 
Here, the Greek seems much more clear that the events are expected to be near or close at hand, and not just that they will occur rapidly when they do come. The second reason is because in the last chapter of Revelation, there are several instances of the same sentiment. I have already mentioned that in Revelation 22 verse 6, the exact same phrase, shortly take place, is used. In addition, Jesus uses the phrase, I am coming quickly, three times. However, the clearest phrase is found in verse 10 of chapter 22, where it says, quote, And he said to me, Do not seal the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. Since it is not possible to reconcile all of these temporal phrases to Walford's view that only the speed of the events and not the period of time between the prophecy and the event is meant, we must look for an explanation of this phrase elsewhere. I agree with Alan Kirshner and others that these temporal phrases in Revelation like things which must shortly take place, the time is near, and the time is at hand, express the same expectancy found throughout the New Testament. The apostles saw it as the duty of the church to expect Christ's return in their lifetime and to be diligent and watchful as a result. This attitude of expectancy, believing that the return of Christ would come at, quote, an hour they did not suspect, and therefore must always be ready for, was taught to them by Christ himself, Matthew 24, 42-51. The apostles, who were very specifically told that it was not for them to know the times or seasons of Christ's return, Acts 1, verse 7, were nevertheless instructed to teach people to expect his return at all times. While this teaching of theirs, which is found throughout the New Testament, is misunderstood by some as evidence that the apostles wrongly believed that Christ would return in their lifetime, it is in fact evidence of them faithfully following Jesus' teaching in Matthew 24, 42-51. Since neither they nor Jesus himself knew the exact time of the second coming, they were to believe and teach that it was near or at hand. This phrase in Revelation 1 verse 1 is just one more of many instances of their teaching the doctrine of expectancy. Revelation 1 verse 2 Who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. In this verse, John is testifying to the authenticity of the message. He notes the message is of divine origin and that he faithfully recorded all of it. The language he uses here, to bear witness and testimony, is typical for John and is seen in both his gospel and his first epistle. It is one of the many reasons that the church believes that the book of Revelation was written by Jesus' beloved disciple John and not another John. Revelation 1 verse 3 Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. This verse gives evidence that this book was intended to be distributed and read publicly to the congregations of the seven churches mentioned in the next verse, 1 verse 4. A public reader was often necessary due to the difficulty of making copies and the fact that not everyone was able to read at that time. Blessed. Many commentators say that this promised blessing will be given to anyone who simply hears the words of the book. But a closer inspection of the verse reveals that it wasn't simply the hearing of the words of the book that guaranteed a blessing. The hearers were told to keep those things which are written in it in order to be blessed. 
Quite possibly the things which needed to be kept in order to be blessed are the specific commandments given to each of the seven churches found in the next two chapters. Each of the letters to the seven churches contains an admonition from Jesus. The following is a list of the commandment portion of each of the seven letters. To the church of Ephesus, Remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. To the church of Smyrna, do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. To the church of Pergamum, repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. To the church of Thyatira, now to you I say, and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put you no other burden, but hold fast what you have till I come. To the church in Sardis, be watchful and strengthen the things which remain, and that are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember therefore how you have received and heard, hold fast and repent, Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come to you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. To the church in Philadelphia, Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one take your crown. To the church in Laodicea, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve, that you may see, as many as I love I rebuke and chasten, therefore be zealous and repent. One piece of evidence that gives weight to this theory that the things that were to be kept in order to receive the blessings are actually found in the commandment portions of the letters to the seven churches is the phrase found in the last part of Revelation 1 verse 3, For the time is near. For the time is near. This phrase is often overlooked by commentators, but it is crucial to understanding the nature of the blessing promised to the readers spoken of in Revelation 1 verse 3. The for tells us that the reason a person would be blessed if they hold fast or keep the words of this prophecy is because the time is near. The idea is that the end is near, Jesus is going to return, and the churches need to heed the warnings applicable to them and repent. This repentance would then guarantee them the blessings mentioned in each of the seven letters. Directly after each call to repentance or admonition in the seven letters is a statement of the blessing received by the one who heeds the warning. These statements include a phrase which is found in each of the seven letters. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We see in these statements the same sentiment found in Revelation 1 verse 3, which is that of a blessing given to those who heed the warnings given to them, and are told to do so quickly because the time is near. A few examples of this symmetry between Revelation 1 verse 3 and the blessings in the seven letters are listed below. Thyatira, And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron, they shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels, as I also have received from my father and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Pergamum. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. 
to him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. So the blessing spoken of in Revelation 1-3 is given to the person who not only hears the words of the prophecy, but holds fast to the admonitions given, and therefore is known as an overcomer. As we will see when we study the seven letters in detail, each letter was written to churches in the past, but also to those of all generations, for the same purpose, to warn them that the end was near, and that they needed to shape up if they expected to be able to endure the trials that would come upon the church in the last days. It tells anyone who has an ear to heed the warnings to these churches, and thereby receive the immeasurable blessings described in each of the letters. Revelation 1 verse 4 John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace, from him who is, and who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia. This begins John's greeting to his immediate audience. The seven churches, which are individually listed in Revelation 1 verse 11, were in Asia Minor a Roman province located in modern-day western Turkey. Grace to you in peace. This is a typical greeting for New Testament epistles. A similar construction is also found in John's second epistle and in many of the letters sent by the apostles Paul and Peter. From him who is and who was and who is to come. God uses this phrase to describe himself later in Revelation 1 verse 8. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. The four cherubim around the throne use a similar phrase to describe God in Revelation 4.8. And the four beasts had each of them six wings about him, and they were full of eyes within. And they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. It seems clear that in this verse the phrase is used to describe God the Father, since the greeting is also said to be from Jesus Christ in the next verse, and it seems unlikely that he would be named twice. That being said, it is also very clear that Jesus uses the title Alpha and Omega, the phrase that is connected to the is and was and is to come in Revelation 1 verse 8, to describe himself a few verses later, Revelation 1 verse 11, and then again in Revelation 21 6 and 22 13. This then appears to be one of the many ways that the divinity of Christ is expressed in this book, and we will see many more as we progress. Though many, in fact most commentators, claim that this phrase, is and was and is to come, is constructed in such a way as to reflect the name Yahweh, which traditionally means I am that I am, I am not as sure as they seem to be about that. My hesitation derives mostly from the apparent difficulty of translating the divine name. There are significant challenges with discovering the correct verb tense of aya, that is to be, which is used twice in the Tetragrammaton. Dr. Michael Heiser, a well-known Hebrew scholar, suggests the correct tense is the third masculine singular hiffle imperfect, meaning the name should be translated something like he who causes to be. In any case, neither Heiser's translation nor the traditional I am that I am translation seems to be saying the same thing as him who is, who was, and who is to come. Because there is so much debate and very little consensus among scholars about the all-important tense of the verbs in the divine name, 
it would seem to me that it would be presumptuous to assume this phrase is intended to be understood as a variation of Yahweh. However, since I'm not a Hebrew scholar, I will leave this to the experts for a final verdict. I think the phrase is more likely describing the eternality of God. It is saying that his existence transcends the past, present, and future. From the seven spirits who are before his throne. There is a good deal of debate as to who or what these seven spirits before the throne of God are. Some say it's a reference to the Holy Spirit, while others maintain that the seven spirits are angels that preside in the throne room of God. I will discuss the pros and cons of each of these positions later, but for now, let's start fresh without any preconceived ideas and deal with what we can know for sure. We see another clear picture of these seven spirits in Revelation 5-6, which will help us in our attempt to discover who or what they are. It says, And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne, and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb, as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And again, in Revelation 4, 5, And from the throne proceeding lightnings, thunderings, and voices, seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Revelation 3, 1 says, And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God, and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Based on these three passages, we can gather a few facts about the seven spirits. There are seven of them, Revelation 1, 4, 4, 5, and 5, 6. They are before God's throne, Revelation 1, 4, 4, 5. They are Jesus' eyes, Revelation 5, 6. They are sent out into all the earth, Revelation 5, 6. Jesus has them, Revelation 3.1. They are horns, Revelation 5.6. They are burning lamps of fire, Revelation 4.5. The idea that the seven spirits are God's eyes have a very interesting connection to the Old Testament. Zechariah 4.10 says, For who hath despised the day of small things? For they shall rejoice, and shall see the plummet in the hand of Zerubbabel. With those seven are the eyes of the Lord which run to and fro through the whole earth. In Zechariah 4.10 it says, God has seven eyes, and these eyes go to and fro through the whole earth. This covers two of the characteristics of the seven spirits listed above. Zechariah also mentions that God has seven eyes in another place, Zechariah 3.9. The idea that God's eyes go to and fro throughout the earth is mentioned multiple times in the Bible, one example is found in 2 Chronicles 16.9, which says, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth, to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. In this you have done foolishly, therefore from now on you shall have wars. Revelation 4.5 tells us that the seven spirits are burning lamps of fire before God's throne. This has an interesting connection to God's eyes, since God-slash-Jesus' eyes are described as burning lamps of fire on several occasions as well. Daniel 10.6, Revelation 1.14, 2.18, and 19.12. So at this point, we see that Jesus-slash-God's eyes have the following characteristics. There are seven of them. They go to and fro throughout the earth. They are burning lamps of fire. 
It would be easy to stop here and say that the seven spirits are simply symbolic representations of God's eyes and nothing more. However, it is a little more complicated than that, as there are several good reasons to believe that these seven spirits are literal spirits, or angels, who are often symbolically portrayed as burning lamps of fire before the throne, or God's eyes. The idea that these seven spirits are both before the throne of God and sent out into all the earth is very interesting and worthy of further consideration. In Revelation 8 verse 2, we read the following, And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. This verse gives commentators a great deal of trouble, since the grammar of the passage suggests that the seven angels who stand before God have already been introduced previously in the book. This is not a problem if you believe the seven spirits are actually seven angels, because Revelation 1-4 quite clearly says, the seven spirits who are before his throne also see a similar phrase found in 4-5. However, most commentators have already defined the seven spirits as the Holy Spirit by this point, and it puts them in the position of having to disregard the apparent connection between the seven angels before the throne of God and the seven spirits before the throne. The idea that there are a select group of angels who have special access to the throne of God is a pretty consistent theme in the Bible. Luke 1 verse 19 says, And the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and was sent to speak to you and bring you these glad tidings. This is an interesting verse because not only does Gabriel say that he stands in the presence of God, but also that he was sent by God on this special mission. This possibly explains how the seven spirits of Revelation can be said to be both before God's throne and sent out into all the earth at the same time. That is, if, like Gabriel, they have special access to the throne of God, but are frequently dispatched to the earth for divine missions. Another case where angels are said to be sent to and fro throughout the whole earth is found in Zechariah chapter 1. Zechariah 1.10 says, And the man who stood among the myrtle trees answered and said, These are the ones whom the Lord has sent to walk to and fro throughout the earth. Also see Job 1.6-7, where the sons of God are before the throne and described as walking to and fro throughout the whole earth. The idea that God has seven particular angels before his throne that perform various duties for him, including going in and out from the presence of God, is a consistent theme in the non-canonical apocryphal literature. Tobit 12.15 says, I am Raphael, one of the seven holy angels, which present the prayers of the saints, and which go in and out before the glory of the Holy One. Although it is certain that these extra-biblical texts are not to be given any serious consideration in determining the truth of this matter, it is nevertheless interesting that the various elements which we have already seen in Scripture are reflected here. One such extra-biblical source, one Enoch, is interesting because sections of it were quoted by Jude, Jude 1.14, and thus has slightly more credibility than other such documents. In 1 Enoch 20 verses 1 through 8, the seven angels before the throne are named. Included in the list of names are Gabriel, Raphael, Michael, and four others. The reason I am bringing up one Enoch, however, is because I think it helps us to make sense of why these seven spirits are equated so strongly with the eyes of God. 
Enoch calls these seven angels the angels who watch. This has a biblical connection as well, because in the book of Daniel, chapter 4, verse 17, Daniel calls the particular class of holy heavenly beings that decreed Nebuchadnezzar's chastisement watchers. While not perfectly clear, it is possible to come to the conclusion using only accepted canonical text that these seven spirits are symbolically portrayed as God's eyes because they are commissioned by God to go to and fro on the whole earth and watch for certain things. However, if Revelation 8.2 is also speaking of the seven spirits, then we must conclude that these spirits also have the job of being God's agents to carry out his wrath, since in that case they are the same seven angels who blow the seven trumpets. If this is the case, it might explain why these seven spirits are also called seven horns in addition to eyes. Revelation 5.6 says, And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne, and the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. In the Bible, horns are used metaphorically for strength, Deuteronomy 33.17, and honor, Job 16.15, Lamentations 2.3. Horns are emblems of power, dominion, glory, and fierceness, as they are the chief means of attack with animals endowed with them, Daniel 8.7, 1 Samuel 2.1, 1 Kings 1.39, 22.11, and Joshua 6.4. Since all of God's wrath in the book of Revelation was carried out by angels, most often through a particular set of seven angels, it could explain why the seven spirits are also called horns, that is, because they are God's primary means of attacking his foes in this case, or perhaps as a symbol of his strength. It should be noted here that although it seems clear that the seven spirits in Revelation 1-4 could easily be connected to the seven angels with the trumpets in Revelation 8-2, there is no direct connection to these angels and the seven angels over the seven churches, which will be introduced later in chapter 1, nor to the seven angels who carry the seven bowls of wrath in Revelation 15. This is not to say that they are not the same group of angels. They certainly could be and I even tend to lean in that direction, but there is no clear link that I can find in order to say for sure that they are the same group of seven angels. I will now move on to discussing why I think the seven spirits are not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is never said to be seven spirits in Scripture. This problem is often dealt with by proponents of the Holy Spirit view by pointing to Isaiah 11:2, which says, The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. They would say that the Holy Spirit is here pictured with seven attributes. I'm not sure how this got past the fact-checkers of the early commentaries, but there are only six attributes listed here not seven. This is made even more strange when you realize that virtually every commentary on Revelation 1-4 in the last 100 years points to this verse as proof that the Holy Spirit has seven attributes and thus should be seen as the seven spirits of Revelation 1-4. Probably the best argument for the Holy Spirit view of the seven spirits concerns the way that the seven spirits are referred to in the greeting found in Revelation 1-4-5, which says, John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, 
Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. Because this greeting places the beings in this order, God, the seven spirits, and Jesus Christ, it would seem to be inappropriate for John to mention mere angels in such an exalted context. This, however, would not be the first time that a certain class of angels was mentioned in the context of God the Father and Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy 5.21 says, I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that you observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing with partiality. John, who actually talked with one of the seven angels who blew the trumpets and twice tried to bow down to him, but was stopped and rebuked by the angel, knew very well by this point that the angels he conversed with and saw inflicting punishments on the world were not to be equated with God or Jesus. But, like Paul, who also visited the throne of God at one point, 2 Corinthians 12, 1-4, John recognized the important position that these angels had in God's service. And like Paul, John does not mean to exalt these angels above their station, simply because he mentions them in context with God and Jesus in his greeting. Thanks for listening. If you would like a free copy of the Christianity 101 DVD, which contains 8 gigabytes of audio, video, and text of various discipleship materials on a data DVD, please go to any one of my websites and look for the Christianity 101 button. It's totally free, and I'll ship it to you wherever you are in the world. If you would like to support this ministry or any of the others that I do, please consider a tax-deductible donation, which can be sent by PayPal using the email chris at chriswhiteministries.com or by clicking the PayPal button on any one of my websites. Another great way to support this ministry is by writing a review of the podcast on iTunes or writing a review of my books on Amazon. Reviews figure very prominently into the ranking algorithms of both of those websites, and the higher they rank, the more people that can be reached. Thanks for your time and for subscribing to this feed.